You're listening to Geek Cred, episode 47, featuring Ernie Klein. Hello, Internet. I'm Steve Rickyberg, and welcome to Geek Cred, the podcast that delivers in-depth, behind-the-scenes interviews about everything geek. On this episode, I am pleased to introduce writer Ernie Klein. Welcome to Geek Cred. Thanks for having me. So to start off, especially for those that might not be familiar with you and your work, who is Ernie Klein? <laughs> who is Ernie Klein? I, um, I started out doing spoken word stuff like stand-up comedy and like spoken word uh, performance like here in Austin, Texas, just, you know, starting out as a writer and uh, had a lot of success like performing at the Austin Poetry Slam and ended up being like the Austin Slam champion, like the citywide spoken word performance champion for a few years running. Wow. And um, that gave me a lot of confidence as a writer. And that's also the time that I started uh, screenwriting and I wrote my first real screenplay, which was uh, Fanboys. And that took about 10 years, but that ended up uh, getting made and produced as a movie. And that's uh, kind of when I became a, a full-time screenwriter. Right. And uh, so I've written a bunch of screenplays, but that's still the only one that's been produced uh, so far as Fanboys. And then just last year, I uh, published my first novel, uh, Ready Player One, which came out in August and uh, and became a New York Times bestseller. Um, which still amazes me in, in the best way. I mean, <laughs> that's crazy, you know, for your first uh for your first book, and especially for as like geeky a book. Exactly. This is. this is like the geekiest book you could possibly have <laughs> with all the references to classic video games and internet culture. And that being a New York Times bestseller is just huge for me. Yeah, I know. That's it's because I really thought that I was writing something that would just appeal to me and maybe, you know, a, a small, tiny subset of, you know, worldwide readership. I didn't think it would be something that would have mass appeal or would appeal to, you know, a lot of people. And, uh, but it does, it seems to appeal to people who weren't even alive in the eighties, you know, uh, which is really, uh, kind of awesome. Talk about an example of the kind of geek ascension. But, uh, so for those that haven't read player one, give me a little bit of a synopsis. What is it all about? Um, well, it's set about 30 years in the future and, uh, it's kind of, a We'll call it a mashup of Willy Wonka and the Matrix is what USA Today where <laughs> they summed it up. But it, it's set about thirty years in the future when uh, kind of climate change and peak oil and you know bad things have made uh, life in the real world really kind of horrible. So people retreat and spend all their free time in this virtual world, kind of a coolest possible future version of the internet called the Oasis, where it's kind of Facebook and World of Warcraft and Twitter and it can have everything we know and use the internet for kind of mashed into like one kind of sprawling virtual world where everybody spends their free time. And at the as the book opens, the creator of this virtual world, who's kind of a, a, a guy who grew up in the 80s uh, named James Halliday, he dies and leaves his entire fortune and control of the company and the virtual world, uh, billions of dollars to whoever can solve these video game puzzles that he's left behind, a series of Easter eggs that he's hidden inside the the virtual world. So it's kind of the greatest video game contest imaginable. Yeah. And it takes place in this uh, virtual world where anything is possible. So that's the gist of it. And quickly becomes apparent that all the puzzles that this eccentric billionaire left behind have to do with the things that he was obsessed with, which was, you know, his youth, like late seventies, eighties, popular culture and movies, television, and right. a lot of video games. So it was like a way for me to celebrate all, all this uh, stuff that I love, right. but put it into like a cool adventure story. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say, how much of this is autobiographical in that sense? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, as far as like the stuff that I threw into the book, it's all stuff that I love. Uh, I didn't go look anything up or... Right. or oh, uh, yeah. For anyone who reads the book, I think it's pretty clear that there's a real affection for it. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not stuff... Uh, 
like some people have accused me of pandering to geeks, but anybody who knew me would know that I'm like the world's biggest geek and I wasn't pandering to anybody but myself. I was going to say, it's uh, not pandering <laughs> if you're pandering to yourself. <laughs> it's true. But some people just can't believe that a, a mainstream author, but I never thought that I would be that. I right. don't know. I guess just nobody can believe like anybody's this much of a geek, but it's, you know, I have evidence. There's proof that I am. So. Definitely. So what was the kind of inspiration behind it and your influences in writing Ready Player One? Um, well, the inspiration kind of came from a lot of Roald Dahl's books, like the Willy Wonka books and James and the Giant Peach. And I love those books when I was a kid and books with kind of a really downtrodden young protagonist that goes on a like a grand adventure. And, uh, and there were a lot of 80s movies that were like that, too, that mm. I love, like The Goonies and The Explorers and The Last Starfighter, these movies about kids who go on this kind of epic adventure, get lifted out of their everyday, you know, uh, lives and go on this fantastic journey or quest. So that was the inspiration. And they like the original idea was what if Willy Wonka had been a video game designer? And that I coupled with this idea of, uh, of the very first video game Easter egg that I remember finding in the, uh, Atari 2600 game adventure. Mm. It's the very first time that a video game designer hid something in the game without telling anybody. And then people would find it later on is like this connection between the video game designer and the person who found it. And I remember being really affected by that. And I know a lot of other people were, so that coupled that idea with the Willy Wonka contest idea and a video game Easter egg hidden inside a virtual world. And, and the big inspiration for the virtual world is books like Neuromancer and, and Snow Crash, right. like the metaverse in Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash was a big influence. But I tried to kind of update that idea. And I spent you know most of my 20s working in IT and, and working on the internet and helping people use the internet. And so a lot of my experience uh, and what I know about the internet and how I imagine the internet evolving, uh, all of that inspired the book. Right, right. So are you a massively multiplayer online gamer? Um, I was for a brief obsessive time. I got addicted to EverQuest, Evercrack, and uh, then stopped oh, okay. because I was just, uh, it was, you know, becoming a detriment to my life. Right. But then when I was researching Ready Player One, I came back to it for a while and, and played a, a series of MMO games just to see how they were evolving since EverQuest. And I, uh, like, I, I played Anarchy Online and I played WoW and, like, resisted the urge to, you know, obsessively level up. And just- <laughs> Just to test them out and just to see how the mechanics work and see how that might affect the story of my book. But then like about two weeks ago, I, I couldn't resist playing Old Republic because it's you know, uh, yes. a brand new MMO. And I haven't had a lot of time to play, but I have a, what is he? I think he's 15th level Jedi that I named Parzival, of course, nice. after the character. Yeah, that's the most recent MMO that I've played. But mostly I jump on and play like Half-Life or Portal or something, you know, where I can just uh, blow away a bunch of zombies or aliens and then log off. Like I, cause I don't have as much time as I used to. Right. Uh, that's so, but I love MMOs. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I just won't touch MMOs for exactly that reason. Cause I know if I do, I'm just gonna, people won't see me for a week. <laughs> yeah, it's a time suck. And I remember what that's like. And that's that experience I tried to put into Ready Player One, that idea of like what it's like to get so immersed in a virtual world that's more appealing than real life. And so you get like addicted to it. And then that can become, you know, more important than your real life. And that's just something that I think just becomes more and more prominent. Like they have problem in South Korea already of people addicted to MMOs and games like Lineage and Starcraft. And people will drop dead every few months from malnutrition because they're not feeding their physical body because they're so obsessed with video games. So that's like a real concern. That's already a problem. And I would imagine just as technology and video games get more and more realistic and more like real life, then it would just become more and more of a problem. Yeah. I mean, once we have something like, like the immersion suits, that's just the kind of a scary thought of, yeah, some people won't be taking (laughs) care of their physical form. 
but it's like scary, but it also the time incredibly cool. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I remember having that idea way back in the 80s in an arcade. And I'm like, you know, maybe someday there would be an arcade game that you would step inside and it would close around you and make your body feel like you were inside the game. And I remember, and that was, you know, an idea probably planted by Tron, but then also the Matrix. And I didn't want to take it as far as the Matrix where, you know, your brain is plugged in because that's like an extreme thing. But as long as it's something that's just an elaborate video game controller, I think regular normal people who wouldn't necessarily be into video games mm, could yeah. easily get addicted to something because then it stops being a video game and it starts being like a holodeck, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And also one thing I really thought was really great is I actually listened to the audiobook instead of reading it in dead tree form is you just happen to have Will Wheaton reading the audiobook. <laughs> I know. Isn't that like the coolest thing ever? As far as I'm concerned, he's the perfect, perfect guy and always the person that I had in mind from like the time that I, I finished the book. They, I had done, you know, public speaking and some performance stuff, but never any acting. And I'm not a good actor. And all of my favorite audiobooks have always been read by actors who do all the characters and bring all the characters to life. And also for this, I wanted an actor whose work that I loved and somebody who also knew all about classic video games and role playing games and would be able to pronounce and understand all of these movie and music right. references from the 80s. And Will is about two months away from me in age. We were born the same year, just a few months apart. And he's been, you know, a huge geek his whole life. When he was working on Star Trek, playing Wesley Crusher, he would go back to his dressing room and play like Dungeons and Dragons and GURPS and stuff. And he was obsessed with video games. And he wrote a classic video game review column for The Onion called Games of Our Lives for a long time. And I loved his writing. And I knew that he is into all the same stuff that I would and that he would just be the perfect guy. And I and it's been voted one of the best audio books of the year. And, uh, and I think it's like a one man radio play of my mm. book. I think it's just perfect. So I'm glad that you dug it. I, he, uh, he came and did a book signing with me uh, in Seattle. And uh, we read uh, from the book uh, together. And I can tell you, like in person, he's, he's much better than I am. <laughs> uh, so like when I would go on my book tour, sometimes I would just hold up my phone and let Will, you know, read from the book. So I wouldn't have to do it because he's better than I am. Yeah, it just seems amazing that it was such a perfect pairing. Yeah, well, I get to take all the credit for that. That was my idea. I knew <laughs> it wasn't an accident. And, you know, um, a lot of people think that I put his name in the book because he did the audiobook or that, you know. Right, uh, yeah, just, yeah, I was going to mention that. I, I always got a kick out of the, those references to Will Wheaton when he's actually reading the book. <laughs> yeah, well, there was only one, and I put that in there. There's a reference to, to him and Cory Doctorow being, right, the, yeah. being elected as president and vice president of the Oasis Users Council. And the reason that I did that was because I used to like sell spoken word CDs of my stuff on my website. And occasionally, I would get links from other big websites that would help me sell a bunch of CDs. And that happened twice. Once my website was posted on the front page of FARC, back when FARC was like, you know, Reddit is now. And, mm -hmm. uh, and Will Wheaton was responsible. Like he just found my website and dug it and posted it on FARC. And then I sold, you know, like a thousand CDs because of that. And the same thing happened a few years later uh, on an even bigger scale with Boing Boing and Cory Doctorow. Mm. And so when I was writing the book, I'm like, oh, I'll say thank you to those two guys for helping me out. And it'll be like a cool shout out. And they would be the perfect two guys to be the president. Yeah. So that's why I put them in the book like as a way to say thank you, but then forgot all about that. And then when I asked Will to do the audio book and he said yes, my first thought was like, oh my God, he's he's in the book. And he told me that when he reads the audiobook, he doesn't read the book ahead of time because mm. it helps his performance being more fresh. He just reads through like that right. scene or, or that section of the book right before he reads it. So he didn't find out until that day <laughs> that he was the character in the book. But he uh he played it straight. He didn't uh, do any winking or anything, and he just does it perfect. So, uh, yeah, and if and when Warner Brothers ends up making the Rudder Play One movie, I'm going to do everything I can to get Will apart in the movie, too, because he's, uh, he's amazing. Right, yeah. 
So before Ready Player One, there was, of course, Fanboys. Now, what I find really impressive, I didn't realize that this was your first screenplay that you managed to sell. I know, that's what's crazy. Like, I had only written really fan screenplays. Like, I wrote a sequel to Buckaroo Banzai. That was the first feature-length screenplay that I ever wrote, just for fun, just because I loved uh, screenwriting and I was trying to learn to be a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And I love Buckaroo Banzai. It was like one of my favorite movies of all time. And they promised at the end of that movie that there would be a sequel. And nobody, everybody knows there's never going to be a sequel. Right. Because the original didn't make any money. So I wrote like this fan script just to see if I could do it. And that was like, but the first real screenplay with my own uh, characters that I ever wrote was Fanboys. And I was heavily inspired by guys like Robert Rodriguez, uh, who did El Mariachi and Richard Linklater and, and most of all, Kevin Smith and Clerks. When I saw Clerks, that just inspired the hell out of me. I was like, this guy's just a great writer and he's not like a fancy director, but you don't need to be. You can just, you know, if you have a good script and good writing, you can tell a great story that people will connect with. And so that was what I tried to do with fanboys. I wrote it just to be like a small little movie that I would make in Austin, Texas, uh, where I lived uh, myself for no money. But then it ended up enough people read it and responded to it and thought it would be an amazing, like big Hollywood movie that it ended up getting optioned. And it took years and years, but then it eventually ended up getting made and getting made, you know, with the permission of Lucasfilm and shot at Skywalker Ranch and with, you know, Princess Leia and Captain Kirk are in it. It just got crazy. You know, it started out as this small little thing I was just going to try to do myself, but then it became a, you know, actual Hollywood movie with actual Star Wars actors in right, it. So, yeah. And, and as much as there was a whole saga of studio meddling and kind of some fan uproar in, in response, it still amazes me that a film like that ever got made with all those things you mentioned. I know. And, you know, with just a wide array of Hollywood stars, young and established stars. And um, I don't know, it has a the final movie as it was released, I feel like has like a committee made feel to it. It's uneven because there are people near the end there. There were people messing with the movie who didn't know anything about Star Wars, didn't know Star Wars from Star Trek. And, you know, if you don't know Star Wars from Star Trek, then you don't shouldn't be working on my Star Wars movie. That's the way that I (laughs) Right. about it but there's if you ever watch fanboys and there are scenes that seem like they're making fun of geeks as opposed to relating to and celebrating geeks then that's stuff that was put in there against our will and i i um we're still hoping that you know we're eventually going get to get get to do a director's cut of that and you'll see what you know we originally intended uh but it's still a great movie and it, like you said it's amazing that it ever got made and you know uh, i'm an extra in it i play one of the star trek fans nice so uh, that's just like that was the most amazing thing that ever happened to me. But it was also uh, frustrating and really frustrating uh, to have, you know, your story changed and and, yeah. and and warped by people who didn't understand it to begin with. And so that's why I wanted to write a book because I didn't I wanted to try to tell a story with nothing between me and the audience mm. and let people see, you know, geek out as much as I want without anybody telling me to tone it down or that I'm not doing it correctly. And I just wanted to do that and see what had happened. And the results have been pretty crazy <laughs> awesome. So yeah. I would uh, yeah, I would recommend that to everybody. Like I could tell just my experience in Hollywood that they have to make products that appeal to a broad cross-section of people. And they don't want to make things that just appeal to what they think perceive as just a small subculture. But I think that like one of the things that my book proves, there's a lot more people who identify oh, yeah. as geeks oh, out yeah. there yeah, than people. And those are people who buy movies and read books and, you know, devour everything. Yeah, Ready Player One is pretty much case in point. There, you know, there is an audience for this stuff. So, what's different for you about writing a screenplay such as Fanboys and writing a novel such as Ready Player One? Which, aside from the studio issues, which do you prefer to actually write? That's a rough question, man. Because screenplays are much easier to write than Mm -hmm. uh, books. Screenplays like 120 pages, and most of the page is empty. It's all like uh, 
double spaced and just the formatting like 120 pages is like a 120 minute movie. It's about a page a minute in a screenplay. And, um, I could knock out a screenplay in a couple months, but it took me years to, to write my book just because you're, for me, I, it was a, I picked a really big epic kind of story to try to tell for my True. first novel too, which was really hard. And, you know, on a huge worldwide scale, the story. So that was really tricky. And it imagines the world in the future, which is really hard. And so, you know, part of it was just the story that I picked, but that was what I was drawn to. But it took me years and years to do it. And I would try and get frustrated and, and then start over or set it aside for like a year. Time. Whereas a screenplay is I always can finish. So it's like I enjoy the writing of a screenplay more and it goes faster. But the problem with that is almost nobody ever reads your screenplay unless uh, even if your movie gets made, you know, just the people who work on it usually will read it. So you do all this writing and no one ever reads it. And a lot of times, you know, very little of what you wrote, your script is just a blueprint for the movie. Yeah. And a lot of, a very little of what you wrote ends up actually making it into the movie. I mean, some of it does, but yeah. And once you sell the script, kind of all, all bets are off. Oh, it's true. Unless you're a writer, director, producer, yeah. you have total control, but you have to, you have to go through a lot of abuse before you get to that point in Hollywood or, you know, work your way up as an indie director, but it's a whole different medium. Whereas, like I said, with a book, there's nothing between you and the audience and the book is always going to be the way that you want it. And that's also kind of the best way to tell a story because it's like a movie that plays out in on the best stage imaginable, which is like the reader's mind and, right. and the sets are always perfect. And the cast is perfect and everything is the way that it should be because it plays out, you know, on this mental stage. Whereas, uh, film you're limited to what you can make happen in front of the camera or what you can do with computer effects which is you know it's still pretty amazing but it's it's not it's still not like reading books so there are things about that i love about both and i'm drawn to both kinds of storytelling also you can reach a much you know wider audience with a movie a lot more mm -hmm. people watch movies you know and there's something and i grew up on movies and love movies and grew up quoting movies and i know there's nothing like creating your own movie and having that become part of the culture and but I love that about books too. So I don't know. I'm not answering your question. I'm uh, at the moment I'm working on a screenplay and I'm having a blast. So I actually, I think I, I like the process of writing screenplays more, but the end result uh, so far for me of books has been much more satisfying. Yeah. It's not really, you don't have to pick one over the other. I think they're both unique <laughs> in their own way. Right. Yeah, they definitely are. You know, so far I've like writing a novel, but I've had like a unique experience, but it's been the most rewarding experience of my life writing this book and publishing it. And then, you know, and then it ended up getting bought for the movies. And then I got to write the screenplay adaptation of my own book for Warner Brothers, which is everything comes full circle. <laughs> I know it's amazing. But that was also hard because then I had to try and condense this 400 page novel into this 120 page screenplay, which was brutal in its own way. But like, once again, these are problems that a lot of people would kill to have. So, I, <laughs> you know, uh, it's work, but I also really enjoy it. And it's what I've always wanted to do. So, yeah, I, uh, I love the process of both. Right now I'm working on. Uh, screenplay that I want to direct as my first movie that I direct before I write another book. Hmm. I was, I was going to say, how did you get into writing? This was always something you wanted to do professionally? Yeah, it was always what I was best at in school. I was never too good at math or science, but I always seemed to have talent as a writer and enjoyed doing it and performing a little bit too, but I always, I think I was a better writer than performer. And, um, so yeah, I always wanted to do it, but I, uh, you know, didn't, um, through all my twenties, I was working in computers and working in like it and web design and tech support and call centers and stuff like that. And so I was working in technology and that's how I paid my bills. And then I would just write for fun, uh, in my spare time and mostly screenplays and stuff. And it wasn't until I started to sell until I like fanboys got made. And, um, then I was able to live off the money of that while I wrote some, another screenplay and then I had another screenplay optioned and that allowed me to support myself while I finished my novel. So it was, 
and I was really realistic about it. I mean, I didn't become a full-time writer until I actually sold a screenplay. And then right. it seemed like I would have opportunity to try to do it full-time. But also, you know, like one of the things is working a day job and sitting in front of a computer all day at work and then going home and trying to get back <laughs> to the computer and write was really painful. And that yeah. really s- slowed me down too. So it's, day jobs will slow you down. <laughs> yeah. So you were always into all this geeky stuff growing up or was it something you kind of embraced later in life as an adult? No, I, I was more or less like Morrow and Halliday in the book. Uh, <laughs> to some degree, that was my whole childhood was like playing with Star Wars action figures and uh, and reading Tolkien and uh, you know devouring sci-fi and fantasy novels. And then once I got to high school, started to play like Dungeons and Dragons and GURPS and Car Wars and Space Master and Star Frontiers, like a million different role-playing games and reading comic books and movies. I just became obsessed with movies and would like work my way through the library of every video store in my little town where I grew up. And uh, so, yeah, I was, you know, I was really into pop culture and movies and kind of a huge, a huge geek before I even, you know, like knew uh, what the term was. I right, just, uh, right. one day I realized, oh yeah. And I thought, you know, maybe it was like a unique thing. I didn't realize there were people like me, you know, pretty much in every town and every city all around the world. I just, at the time, I, growing up in the 80s, it felt more like isolated. Yeah, like, before uh, the advent of the internet, I was just thinking that it had, it was a much more solitary existence. Yeah, you didn't feel this connection. You couldn't get online and immediately communicate. You could still do it, but in a much more like a smaller scale, you could dial out over like bulletin board systems and, you know, uh, use FidoNet and stuff like that to, to connect other people like the proto- internet but that's part of the coolness of that time for me it was like the dawn of the home computer era that was the first era where people had computers in their homes and the people started to get modems and started to dial out and connect to other computers and word processing and all of that you know and um i got to see all that happen as a kid and then grow up through it and then have it become my career in you know the 90s and then um, be a part of that culture and then since i was a part of it they tell you to write what you know but for me i can't you can't really help it you know everything i write ends up being about Characters (laughs) characters <laughs> who, you know, are into the things that I am because that's, you know, that's the voice that I hear. And so, yeah, there's no pandering and there's no really way to fake it. That's the thing about faking being a geek or faking like a reference. People can tell you yeah. it, it counterfeits instantly. Like, you know, if you don't, if it's not, if it's not something you truly love or something you truly know about, you can't pretend that stuff. So tell me about the very unique uh, vehicle you own. My vehicle, you know, I just had a tire go flat on that today and right before i oh yeah right before i talked to you i just finished uh, getting the tire patched and uh i discovered the jack that comes with the delorean i have a delorean is what we're talking about and i uh, uh i found the jack is 30 years old it's not new jack technology it's old tire jack technology from 1982 but it's not good so i need to invest in a new a new tire jack but um <laughs> i'm uh uh, yeah, this is a, uh, I bought it for my 39th birthday last year, 1982 DeLorean. And it's like the car that I've, uh, I've wanted to own since I was a little kid. And I always, you know, I always wanted to have one. I saw one for the first time when I was 10 and wanted to own one ever since then. And, and when I saw Back to the Future and loved the Back to the Future trilogy, like I loved the car even more now that it was like a, you know, time vehicle. And, uh, so it wasn't until, um, I sold my book and then started to think about my book tour that it occurred to me that I could finally afford to buy a DeLorean and drive it on my book tour and then it would be a business expense. You ah, know? There yeah. you go. So that was how I was able to convince myself to do it. And it has turned out to be like, you know, awesome. It was a, a fantastic to do the book tour in a DeLorean and there's nothing like bringing the 80s to life, like pulling up in a DeLorean full of Ghostbusters gear yeah. and a flex capacitor. Yeah, I love that. It's got the flex capacitor. I mean, <laughs> you have to. I had it for like a month before I got that. And I got asked like 40 times where my flex capacitor was. So if you're going to own a DeLorean, you almost have to have one. It's your duty. 
<laughs> there you go. So a lot of the people I like to talk to on the show, I'd say are creative people in some way. So what inspires you creatively? Purposely open-ended question. Yeah, no, well, um, I'm really a huge cinephile and uh, uh, I'm also you know, into books. Kind of everything that inspires me is stuff that I throw into my writing. So if you read Ready Player One or see Fanboys, you can tell it kind of instantly the kind of things that inspire me and the things that I love. You know, Star Wars has been a huge inspiration to me my whole life, but so many different movies and filmmakers and directors. And, you know, one of my favorite things about living in this time, there's just so much, you know, amazing music and film mm -hmm. and uh, artwork mm -hmm. being created. You could spend all your time just taking it in and still not see all of it. So, yeah. So that's my open-ended answer to your open-ended question. So, so just other really well-done creative works. Yeah, you know, I have like I've done like a million top ten lists this past year of like my favorite movies and stuff on my blog. But uh, what I love, I think more than anything, is people who start out as fans of everything. People who are really enthusiastic and love movies or love mm. music, and then and then love it so much that they want to do it themselves and get involved, and then they end up contributing to the art form and being a part of it and taking it to like a new level. I think that's like my favorite thing about being a fan is I love I love it when fans also become creative people as well and and that creativity is born out of everything that they love you know right. as people as opposed to people who get into it for money or fame or or anything if people get into you know making music or making movies or writing books because it comes out of a love of those things and wanting to be a part of the art form then I think that's where the most amazing stuff comes from mm, definitely Okay, rapid fire time. So reaction time is a factor. So don't think too much. Just answer with whatever comes to mind. Star Wars or Star Trek? Uh, I gotta go with Star Wars. Has been good to me. Probably a little bit of an obvious one for you, but right, uh, right. dark side or light side? I gotta go with the light side. Uh, okay. We'll always triumph over evil. <laughs> Marvel or DC? Um, I gotta go with Marvel. I love DC, but Marvel. Uh, not only are they making awesome movies right now, but I got to give it up because Spider-Man is my favorite of all time. Mm. Robots, pirates, or zombies? Robots will destroy zombies and pirates, I'm afraid. So, so you welcome our robot overlords? I would, yeah. I will be in control of the robot overlords. <laughs> there you go. If my plan, my plan comes to fruition. <laughs> if you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? I would want to be invincible because then I would be invincible. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, I guess. And I guess <laughs> that one's kind of self-explanatory. You can't really argue with that, that right? <laughs> <laughs> would you fight for good or use that power for your own ends? Um, I would fight for good. Of course, I would be the one who decides what good is. So that <laughs> it's all relative, open. right? <laughs> it's, it's true. What is your favorite science fiction curse word? Oh, I have to go with Frack. I love that show to death. <laughs> Can't go wrong with Battlestar Galactica. You cannot. Okay, so that's it for Rapid Fire. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Can I go back to that and change that last sure, answer? Sure. I, I forgot about Goram from Fire. <laughs> An another to, good answer for sure. Yeah, that one's a little better. I'm going to, I want to revise that answer. There you go. All right. So what was this next question? I'm sorry. So that's it for Rapid Fire. Okay. Next up, what might be the geekiest thing you've ever done? Um, I know exactly what the geekiest thing I've ever done is. I left Austin on my book tour to drive all the way up to Michigan. So I was driving this first stretch of my book tours, like 1,200 miles. I drove from Austin, Texas, all the way up to Petoskey, Michigan at the northern end of Michigan. So I had this 1,200-mile road trip. and I did it in a DeLorean um, with a flux capacitor. And there's a <laughs> Ghostbusters proton pack riding shotgun. And uh, 
And, uh, you know, I had it full of, you know, uh, 80s gear and oscillation overthruster. And on the stereo, I was either listening to 80s music, but most of the way I was listening to Will Wheaton read my own audiobook because I hadn't had a chance to listen nice. to the whole thing. So, like me in my DeLorean listening to Will Wheaton read my geekiest book ever written audiobook, surrounded by ghostbusting equipment. I, I challenge anyone to top that. <laughs> That had to be a very surreal experience. It was very surreal, but I was just like, I kept expecting uh, like a, a singularity, nerd singularity <laughs> to occur because I was just like, wow, this is, you can't get much nerdier than this. I couldn't even, couldn't even fathom a way that I could get geekier than that. So that's mine. If you run across somebody who can top that, uh, let me know. I, I always get some very interesting answers to this question, but yeah, that, that's, that's pretty hard to top. I, I gotta say. <laughs> it's insanely, insanely nerdy. So any new projects you've got coming up that we can look forward to? Um, well, hopefully the Ready Player One film adaptation. I spent the a big chunk of last year on the first draft of the screenplay for that. And um, so now they're uh, in the process of finding the right director. And hopefully that'll be a giant Warner Brothers summer movie uh, at some point. I'm also working on this uh, little uh, kind of 80s geek coming of age movie that I want to direct myself. It's going to be Kind of like American Graffiti or Days Confused, like my 80s geek uh, version of that. And then after I tackle that, then uh, there are more books that I want to write. But uh, that's what I'm working on right now. Always got something going. Yeah, you have to. All right. Well, we are just about out of time. So where can people go to find more about you and about all your great work? Um, I, my website, ErnieKlein.com or ErnestKlein.com, because I'm such a nerd that I had to do both <laughs> domain versions of my name. So yeah, either of those will work. Yeah, so everybody go check out Fanboys. Go read Ready Player One. Great stuff. Thank you so much for talking with me. You've definitely got some geek cred. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it, man. Well, that's just about going to do it for this episode. But if you've got any questions, comments, suggestions, whatever your feedback, make your voice heard. Call 818-925-4335 or email geekcred at geekcred.net. You can also find the show notes and much more information, including Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and more, as well as how to donate. Really, your donations help make this show possible. It's all over on the website at geekcred.net slash 47. For Ernie Klein, I've been Steve Rickyberg, and that's it for me. So until next time, geek on. Geek on.